Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. The great paradox of Jesus' trials before Annas and Caiaphas is that while they were trying to find some way to convict Jesus of breaking the law in some way, they were actually breaking the law in many ways by holding his trial in the way that they did. As a matter of fact, they broke 18 different rules and regulations of holding a trial before the Sanhedrin in the way that they interrogated Jesus just before his crucifixion. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Okay, so um, as you know, we're studying in this series the things that happened uh, to Jesus after, at, from the end of the Last Supper to the beginning of the crucifixion. There's a lot of stuff, and, and a lot of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are spent on these things uh, that happened from the end of the Last Supper to the beginning of the crucifixion. And uh, last week we... we completed our study on Jesus' trial before Annas. And the next thing, then, is because at the end of that interrogation, Annas sent Jesus to Caiaphas to be interrogated by him. And so Jesus is now on the way. Uh, being uh, He's bound. He's being uh, taken to, dragged to uh, Caiaphas now. And uh, I thought, and when we get, and, and we're going to look in Matthew 26, is where we're going to eventually end up uh, for this. It's, it's in Mark and Matthew pretty pretty significantly, and they match up pretty much, they match up very closely to one another, Matthew and Mark's account of, of Jesus' trial before Caiaphas. Uh, we're going to look at both of them back and forth. We're going to concentrate mostly on Matthew's account in Matthew 26. But... Um, when we get to Caiaphas, Jesus is when when Jesus was having his trial before Annas, it was basically just Annas, as you recall. Annas was the one interrogating Jesus. Annas was the one uh, uh, kind of trying to force Jesus to give him answers about his disciples and his teaching. And uh, you know, Jesus pretty much didn't give Annas any direct answer to any of those questions, uh, but said, you know, hey, where are the witnesses? Right? Why don't you ask? those who were there who heard me, what, what I said, and so forth. 
And uh, so eventually Annas just got frustrated with Jesus because he wasn't getting, and he wasn't really, and remember, Annas wasn't really looking for the truth, was he? We called it in Greek, kalos, kalos. He wasn't looking for kalos. He was looking for kakos, which was something bad that Jesus would say, because the whole point of both of these trials, as they were, uh, was to find something that they could convict or find Jesus guilty of uh, so that he could be put to death. Uh, so Jesus wasn't going to, uh, 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 you know, fall into Annas's trap, not that there were a trap, because Jesus had nothing, he ha- was not guilty of anything. But he wasn't going to participate in this sham of a trial that Annas had uh, had subjected him to, or, or interrogation would be a better way, I think, than a trial. Uh, to uh, kind of characterize what was going on there. So at the end of that interrogation before Annas, Annas gets frustrated with them and says, well, just take them on to Caiaphas then. And so they're on the way to Caiaphas. And um, when we get to to Matthew 26, we look at that trial, we're going to find out that it wasn't only Caiaphas in in the trial or the interrogation that Caiaphas has uh, with Jesus, but there are pretty much... Pretty much the whole Sanhedrin. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell us both that it, the whole Sanhedrin was there also. The Sanhedrin was 70 men plus the high priest, 71 people altogether. So uh, where Annas's was a, a one-person interrogation, Caiaphas's is an interrogation before a whole group of people. Uh, but in both instances, uh, the paradox is that while Annas and Caiaphas were trying to figure out something, some charge that they could bring against Jesus to find him guilty of something that was worthy of death, um, and remember, they had to find some charge that would stick not only from a Jewish standpoint, but from a Roman standpoint, because the Jews under Roman uh, subjection, Roman rule, they were not allowed to carry out uh, executions uh, or capital punishment on their own. The one exception, as we talked about last week, was if some Jewish person were to take a, uh, a, a, a Gentile into the certain part of the temple, they could execute that person uh, immediately. But otherwise, they had to have Rome had to be the one who would take care of the execution. And so the, the Annas and Caiaphas were trying to find um, uh, 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 something that they could. Uh, a claim that Jesus had done uh, that would not only be worthy of capital punishment from a Jewish standpoint, but also from a Roman standpoint. And that's tricky. That's tricky. And so uh, this, is the, this is the goal of what they're trying to accomplish here. Annas was not successful. He's hoping that Caiaphas can figure out something. And Caiaphas is there waiting for Jesus to come with the Sanhedrin. So before we launch into that, though, the paradox I was going to mention to you was this, that while Annas and Caiaphas were trying to find Jesus guilty of something, the people who were really guilty of something, of breaking the law, was, were Annas and Caiaphas, where they were trying to say that Jesus was guilty of breaking the law. In the process of trying to do that, they themselves were actually really breaking the law. And, (laughs) 
I'm not trying to make an editorial statement here. Well, no, God gave them uh, capital punishment as a recourse in Deuteronomy for certain things. Uh, so they certainly, but, but, and we're going to talk about this here actually in a minute, it was rare and difficult. Their whole goal, the way, the way most trials in the Sanhedrin were set up, the goal was to find someone innocent. The goal was not to find someone guilty. And they went, way far above and beyond what was necessary to try to find someone innocent. We're going to talk about some of those things here in a minute. So the interesting thing is that where in virtually every other trial, according to the tradition of the Sanhedrin, the whole, the whole process that they were supposed to carry out under normal ways of conducting a trial, the whole intention was to try to find someone not guilty, because they didn't want to execute someone. As a matter of fact, even to the point that if they did eventually find someone guilty of death, uh, on the way to the place where the stoning would take place, there would be a procession from the, where the Sanhedrin met and had their verdict. And they would have the guilty party, and they, and they would be going out to, uh, to the place where they would stone them, and there would be a person on a horseback and they would go very slowly, and the person on horseback would actually look back to the place where the Sanhedrin was, all the way to the place of execution, in case some late-arriving uh, evidence came up where they might change their mind and change their verdict, in which case they could send out a, send out a signal or send someone rushing out there to say, whoa, 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 don't execute this person. So even to the very last minute, they were taking... Uh, 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 you know, precautions to try to make sure, number one, that they didn't execute someone who was innocent, and the whole purpose was to try to find someone not guilty. But in Jesus' case, the whole point was to try to find him guilty, which is so, which is so incredible, because these men knew that what they were doing was not what they were supposed to be doing, and yet they still continued to do it, so... Okay, well, I thought I, before we launched into that, I would do this couple of things here. First, because the Sanhedrin is so important here in um, what is happening in terms of finding Jesus guilty of uh, a charge, uh, I thought we might uh, have a little bit of uh, background on what the Sanhedrin was and, and how they came to be. And this comes out of a, a commentary by uh, John MacArthur. He says, The Jews had always prided themselves on their sense of fairness and justice, and rightly so. The judicial systems of the modern Western world have their foundations in the legal system of ancient Israel, which itself was founded on the standards set forth in their scriptures, the Old Testament. The essence of the Old Testament system of jurisprudence is found in Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bible, if you want to turn, you don't have to, I'll read it to you. If you um, but Deuteronomy uh, 16 is where we're going to find this. Deuteronomy 16, and it's verses 18, starting verse 18. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. And this is Moses writing, what God told him to write here. It says, Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. 
Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So this was what they were supposed to be doing. This is the, the goal, was to fair justice without partiality, without bribery, um, and, and in all fairness to the person accused. Uh, but that isn't exactly the kind of treatment that Jesus got, was it? So... He goes on to say, as the Hebrews worked out specific judicial procedures following those general principles, they determined that any community that had at least 120 men who were heads of families could form a local council. In later years, after the Babylonian exile, the council often was comprised of the synagogue leadership. The council came to be known as a Sanhedrin, from a Greek term, sunadrion, sunadrion, that had been transliterated into Hebrew and Aramaic as it now is into English. It literally means sitting together. Sanhedrin means sitting together. A local Sanhedrin was composed of up to 23 members, had to be at least 23. And the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was composed of 70 chief priests, elders, and scribes, with the high priest making a total of 71. In both the local and the great Sanhedrin, an odd number of members was maintained in order to eliminate the possibility of a tie vote. Members of local Sanhedrins were to be chosen to go to the great Sanhedrin because of their maturity and wisdom, and the great Sanhedrin was to be composed of those who had distinguished themselves in a local council and had served a form of apprenticeship in the national council. So these were supposed to be men who were revered, who were well thought of, who were seen as, you know, following the Jewish regulations and scripture. They had become general before you got to Jerusalem, you served in your local town, synagogue and Sanhedrin. And then as you distinguish yourself there, you would then be promoted to go to Jerusalem to be part of the great Sanhedrin. So these were the cream of the crop, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, the one the Sanhedrin that we find throughout scriptures here were the cream of the crop of the Jewish leadership of that day and the Jewish religious uh, order. So uh, these were the ones who were really the movers and shakers uh, of that time. So um, what I wanted to do, too, was to say was to give you an idea here of the ways that, uh, specifically, uh, Annas and Caiaphas were breaking the law. I said they were the ones actually breaking the law. So I have here from... Uh, Chuck Swindoll's commentary, um, he lists 18 different things, that 18 different rules, regulations, and laws that Annas and or Caiaphas were breaking in their trials of Jesus. So I'll go through these here um, and um, let you see kind of the... So And some of these you'll see Annas did. Some you'll see as we go into Caiaphas's trial, you'll hearken back to, oh yeah, we said that was against, that was against the rules. Uh, and some of them they both did. So, okay, so number one is no trials were to occur during the night hours before the morning sacrifice. Well, Jesus' whole trial was performed at night, and we know this for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that Peter was out there warming his hands, 
in uh, the fire uh, in front of the fire that was they were had because it was dark. It was nighttime. So that was number one. Number two, trials were not to occur on the eve of a Sabbath or during festivals. This was during the Passover festival. Passover lasted a week, basically, the festival itself and all the different things that were handled. And this was handled during the Passover uh, festival, and it was specifically on the eve of a Sabbath that this trial was was taking place. So that was obviously another law that they broke. Number three, all trials were to be public. Secret trials were forbidden. Well, neither the trial before Annas nor Caiaphas was in was public. It was hidden, it was at night, and it was only the judges, uh, the, the, the Sanhedrin, and the high priests. Uh, no one, no public was even, even knew it was happening, much less were able to attend it. So what they actually tried to do was instead of making the trial public, they tried to avoid the public. They went to great lengths to avoid it being a public trial. Number four, all trials were, behead, were to be held in the Hall of Judgment in the temple area. No, this trial happened at Annas's home and at Caiaphas's home. I was talking about last time, that might have been the same home. They might have shared a, com- a, a home complex together. Uh, so this was not being held in. And actually, what the law says specifically is, if, uh, if some trial is held in any place other than the Hall of Judgment, whatever the... Uh, Whatever the uh, whatever they come back with as a ruling uh, is not is null and void. It doesn't count. So whatever they whatever the finding is, if they find someone guilty in a trial that's held anywhere else other than this hall of judgment in the temple area, it, it doesn't count. It's not it's just not real. It, it's, it doesn't hold any water. So so there's another one that they um, they violated. Uh, number five, capital cases required a minimum of 23 judges. Well, we know in Annas' case, he was doing it all by himself. There was not 23 judges there, so he obviously broke that rule. Number six, an accused person could not testify against himself. And number seven goes kind of along the same way. Someone was required to speak on behalf of the accused, someone else. So Annas said specifically, what do you have to say for yourself? What about your teaching? What about your disciples? He wasn't even supposed to even, Jesus was not supposed to be, testify. You, you weren't supposed to testify, you know, in, in a trial like that. And you were required to have someone else speak on your behalf. And they did, obviously, they didn't give any Jesus any chance to have anyone speak on his behalf. It says, conviction required the testimony of two or three witnesses to be in perfect align to be in perfect alignment. So you'd have two or f- three witnesses to be in perfect alignment. And when they say perfect alignment, they mean perfect alignment. They had and and the way that of course they were supposed to do it was each witness was supposed to be independent of the other. So we interviewed one witness, the other witness was out of the room. The other witness comes second witness comes in, the first witness is out of the room. And their testimonies had to match exactly, even to where did it happen, when did it happen, what date did it happen, what time was it. I mean, every specific little thing had to match exactly. Again, because they're trying to give the accused person a chance to be found not guilty. But it's interesting here, in these three things, an accused person could not testify against himself, 
Someone was required to speak on behalf of the accused, and conviction required the testimony of two or three witnesses to be in perfect alignment. If you go back to the, the Annas investigation and, and interrogation, which we just did last week in John chapter 18, it says this in John 18. It says, when, uh, when it says, um, he said, uh, Anna says, uh, he was asking Jesus about his disciples' teaching. And Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together, and I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. So one of the reasons we asked last week, why would Jesus not answer the question directly? Well, one of the reasons is because to answer directly would be actually breaking the law because the accused person wasn't supposed to testify. It was supposed to be other people who testified for him. So one of the very real reasons that Jesus may not have answered any of uh, Annas' questions directly or Caiaphas's is because later is because that wasn't what was supposed to happen. It wasn't supposed to happen like that. And then he goes on to say, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. And then Jesus said, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And the, in Greek, the word testify, when Jesus says, uh, replied, testify as to what is wrong, the word testify in Greek actually could also be uh, translated as witness. So what Jesus is saying there is, be a witness. Show me a witness. Where's your witness? You know, I'm supposed to have a witness. Why don't you have someone here who heard what I said to ask them, because I'm not supposed to answer you directly. That would be breaking the rules. But I'm supposed to have a witness, and right here, witness as to what is wrong. Show, Bring a witness before me that's wrong or right. And, and uh, you, know, you need to have a witness who testify that I did something wrong. And they didn't have a witness. And they asked Jesus to witness, and he wasn't even supposed to. So uh, that's, you know, again, break the law, break the law, break the law. Okay, number nine. Witnesses for the prosecution were to be examined and cross-examined extensively. So there were no witnesses for the prosecution. I mean, there were witnesses for the prosecution. In Caiaphas's case, they bring witnesses, <clears throat> they bring witnesses to testify against Jesus, um, but they weren't exactly cross-examined extensively, I don't think. Uh, number 10, we'll see why, we'll see why when we get there. Uh, because even, even, even what they convicted Jesus of, which was two witnesses saying that he said that he would destroy the temple and himself, that he himself would destroy the temple and in three days he would build it back again, uh, himself. Uh, if you read the Matthew and the Mark, um, passages. What Matthew says that the witnesses said is one thing. What Mark says the witnesses said is slightly different. And so a lot of people think that these are the two witnesses. And Matthew gave the account of one of the witnesses. Mark gave the account of the second witness, and they don't match. And so they shouldn't have even convicted him on that because the two witness accounts on what they did convict him of don't even match up. And they're supposed to match exactly, remember? Okay. Number 10, capital cases were to follow a strict order, beginning with arguments by the defense, then arguments for conviction. So there were no arguments for the defense in either of these trials. Number 11, all Sanhedrin judges could argue for acquittal. All Sanhedrin judges could argue for acquittal, 
but not all could argue for conviction. Again, trying to find someone not guilty, it was unevenly balanced towards acquittal. Number 12, the high priest could not participate in the questioning. In both Annas and Caiaphas' case, they were the only ones that participated in the questioning. Number 13, each witness in a capital case was to be examined individually, not in the presence of other witnesses. We don't know. If, you kind of get the idea when you read the passage that the two witnesses they did come up with maybe were there in the room together. You don't know for sure, but it seems a little fishy. Number 14, the testimony of two witnesses found to be in contradiction rendered both invalid. The testimony of two witnesses found to be in contradiction rendered both invalid. Now, here's something that's interesting. If you were found eventually to be a false witness in a trial before the Sanhedrin, uh, and they, they found out that you, the testimony you had given was a lie, you would face the same punishment as the person who was on trial. So that was kind of an extra oomph there, oomph, to make sure that whatever was testified was true. You didn't exactly go up and tell a lie when you know if you're found out that you were lying, that you could be the one getting stoned. So that was an extra. And the other thing is, if if you were one of the main witness, if you would say you were the main witness, you were one of the two main witnesses that ended up getting a person convicted of a capital crime and the and the crime was stoning, then you also had to be the person who threw the first stone. So in other words, are you sure? Because not only are you have the risk of yourself being receiving this punishment if you're found false, but do you really believe it strongly enough that are you going to be able to throw that first stone? And that's why when Jesus said with the woman found in adultery, what did he say? Let you who without sin throw the first stone. That's what he was referring to there. Okay, uh, let's see. Oh yeah, number 15. Voting for con Voting for conviction and sentencing in a capital case was to be conducted individually beginning with the youngest person in the Sanhedrin, beginning with the youngest, so younger members would not be influenced by the voting of the elder members. So we don't have, in the case we'll see in Caiaphas, when Jesus is eventually convicted, found guilty of what he was found guilty of, there's no vote. It's just, he, he should deserve this, right? Everybody goes, right, no! That's not the way, you know, that way we do it in like even church meetings today. All those in favor say, yay, yay. All those opposed say, no, no, no. It was like, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? So you couldn't hide behind someone else. And they started with the youngest, so you couldn't be influenced in your vote by the, by the older members. Number 16, verdicts in capital cases were to be handed down only during daylight hours. You said that. 17, uh, the members of the Sanhedrin were to meet in pairs all night to discuss the case and reconvene for the purpose of confirming the final verdict and imposing sentence. So in other words, if you found someone guilty today of a capital crime, then you were to convene, and all night long, or most in the evening, you and another member of the Sanhedrin were to get together and talk about, well, the, talk about the trial and everything. And uh, then you're supposed to come back the next day 
and take another vote and make sure are we still all on the same? You know, you had a chance to talk about it during the night. And the, are we are we still on the same page with the conviction? And then if you were found convicted, you're supposed to wait yet another day before the actual uh, execution would take place. Another day to give people kind of a cooling off period to make sure, you know, and also in case any more evidence came forward at the last minute, they didn't rush. To, in other words, they weren't supposed to rush to judgment. They weren't supposed to rush to execution. It was supposed to be deliberate and careful and slow. And the last one is, and this says the wise, sentencing in a capital case was, did, was not to occur until the following day. So there's a one day, should have been a one day cooling off period that obviously Jesus did not get in his trial, right? So, so those are all the ways that uh, Annas and or Caiaphas broke all of these laws and the Sanhedrin. I mean, can you imagine? No one, no one stood up and said, now wait a minute. <laughs> it does, but it does seem to be that way, right? There's, there, you know, there are some things you just think that, I mean, surely you, you have to agree on this, and yet we don't agree. It's like, if you can't agree on this, and what you can, but but with the Sanhedrin, there were procedures, there were things set in place, and these people had had trials before. These weren't these were veteran, seasoned, older judges and leaders in the religion who knew the rules, knew what they were supposed to do, knew what Moses said in Deuteronomy, knew how it was supposed to be handled, knew their traditions, and yet over and over and over again in Jesus' trials, they are breaking the rules, breaking the rules, breaking the laws, and no one stands up and says, let's just, can we just slow down a minute? And it was fast, it was quick, it was boom, 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 boom. It wasn't supposed to be that way. And no one stood up and said, now, wait a minute. So we have in here, too, we'll see, it says that all the members of the Sanhedrin eventually said that Jesus was guilty and should be uh, you know, should should die for his uh, what he said, um, but but we know Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the member of the Sanhedrin and uh, was and a, you know would he not have stood up and said, wait a minute, you know this is wrong, what we're doing is wrong, and what people think uh, people think is probably Joseph of Arimathea was not there in Caiaphas's home. So there's a, there's a, and maybe, and Nicodemus too, remember? So there might have been a couple of reasons for this, right? This is happening at night. This is happening when most people are in bed asleep. Uh, the only way that the people who made it to Caiaphas's house knew that they needed to make it to Caiaphas's house was because they had been told that they needed to come to Caiaphas's house. So what if the people in charge knew that Joseph maybe was a follower of Jesus, a believer, whatever. We know Nicodemus was a secret believer, but maybe someone had a suspicion. It could be that they were not informed, that they were not included or told to come, that they were left home in bed that night. Or it could be that they might have been there at the beginning, and because of such a sham of justice, and they saw uh, such an in, so, uh, so unjust and such a sham of justice, that at some point they left and decided, I can't be a part of this, you know. 
that can happen too. We don't know, but but they they apparently were not there uh, at the final judgment of uh, in Caiaphas's home. So, okay, we have a few minutes left. So go ahead, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew 26. We'll kind of launch into a little bit of the of the trial here today. Um, so we've now finished uh, during our study. We finished Judas's betrayal. Uh, we did Peter's denial. We did the Garden of Gethsemane experience. We did Jesus' arrest. We did the trial before Annas. And that's only taken us five months. We're rocking and rolling, man. Tell me if you want me to slow down. We'll slow it down. And so now we're here before uh, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas. So let's, let before, again, one more thing. I guess a little bit of, of, of context here. So uh, when it says, uh, let's look here in 20, verse, uh, chapter 26 of Matthew, Verse uh, 57, verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus, remember, took him from where? From Annas's place to Caiaphas, the actual high priest, the one who was voted to, or one who was, he was appointed to be the high priest by Rome, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So this is now going to be a trial before Caiaphas. So let's talk just for a minute about who Caiaphas was. We know that Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. Talked about that when we talked about Annas. We know that Caiaphas was, like Annas, a Sadducee. Uh, Sadducees were pretty much in power in the, in the Sanhedrin at that time. His full name was actually Joseph ben Caiaphas. Caiaphas was his last name. Joseph ben Caiaphas. Uh, he was appointed as a high priest by Rome in 18 AD, and he served until 36 AD, which is 18 years, which was exceptional, a long time in that day, because Rome was uh, fickle about who the high priest would be uh, in Jerusalem, and they changed him often. And uh, most high priests in that time only served for a year or two, some of them only a few months. Remember, we talked about Annas' son, Annas II, Annas Jr. He only served three months. But Caiaphas served 18 years, which was just an extraordinarily long period of time in that day, which tells you something about Caiaphas, and that is he wasn't only a uh, wily uh religious leader, he was also a wily political figure. Because to get along, to get to be 18 years, you had to really get along with Rome. And that was all politics. So he was able to straddle this world of religion and politics for 18 years. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it's interesting because eventually, in the eyes of Rome, uh, Caiaphas and Pilate became to be seen as a package deal. After what, 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 what they did here, what coming out of this interaction between Caiaphas and Pilate to put Jesus to death and to crucify him, coming out of that, uh, in the eyes of Rome especially, Caiaphas and Pilate were seen as, they were, they were connected at the hip, they were joined at the hip. And as a matter of fact, when Rome finally retired Pilate, in 36 AD because of an uprising that took place, and they finally had had it with Pilate and said he can't keep control of his people. 
and they finally retired him in 36 AD. They also deposed Caiaphas as the high priest the same the same year. So in the eyes of Rome, these two became uh, a package deal, and when one was relieved, the other was relieved as well. So. Really, the voting against you, and then you know, and Rome. I would think so because up until that time, uh, there had been you know great uh, opposition between the you know as a Jewish person, Jewish religious leader, you weren't supposed to get along with Rome. You know, I mean, they were pagans, they were not believers, uh, and and you know their way of the world, their worldview, and your worldview were at such uh, diametrically opposed that you really couldn't get along with one another. And but here again, Caiaphas breaks all the rules in the world to go before Pilate to become buddy buddy with them to get this done. And I think, yeah, in the eyes of the people, probably on both sides in Rome and in Jerusalem, both the Jews and the Romans, these two guys were co-conspirators, as it were, and and buddies, you know. I don't know. I have, to, I have to look into that. Yeah. I'll look into that. I'll try to bring you an answer next week. Okay, that's a good question. I don't know. So, okay, so, um, so that's a little bit about Caiaphas and, uh, he was almost, he was, a, he, he and Anna, they were both just bad blood. They were just both bad guys. And uh, there's no other, no other way you can, you can say it. So it says here in verse 57 that those who arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So uh, we know that this is well after midnight. It's, uh, at, it's after it's dark. Uh, it's in the early morning hours, probably right around midnight or just a little bit after midnight. This is all happening. And it says they, they've all assembled. And, um, you know, the, the, to, to what you need to know about is that there's never, ever in the history of Israel up until this point been a trial like this one. And there never was after this. This was unique, different, and corrupt and unlike any other, it stands on its own. They didn't usually assemble at night. They didn't usually have trials at, you know, early in the morning hours. They didn't assemble at people's homes, at the high priest's home. Nothing about this is usual, typical. It's, it is one of a kind, never been done before, never been done since. And, and how, and people think, most commentators think that the reason that Caiaphas was able to assemble all of the uh, the elders and the teachers and the Sanhedrin was while Annas was interrogating Jesus himself, Caiaphas had time to send messengers out and get those guys out of bed, come to my house, we got something important we got to do, we got Jesus, we're going to have a trial, we're going to have an interrogation. And so while Annas was doing his thing, Caiaphas was able to rally the troops, as it were, and get them to his house to have this trial. So. Verse 59, um, or verse 58, but Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So we said where, uh, you know, he was uh, able to see, what, Peter was able to see what was going on and probably hear what was going on too, as a matter of fact. Okay, verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin 
were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. So that's an important statement that Matthew makes there. It says that they were looking for false evidence so they could put him to death. They weren't looking for the truth, were they? Kalos? They were looking for falsehood, kakos. Hmm? Anything and everything. Anything and everything. It was uh what's interesting is, you know, this wasn't uh evidence looking for a verdict. This was verdict looking for evidence, right? Most trials are bring me the evidence, let's develop a verdict. That's not what this was. This was we already got the verdict. Now let's go find the evidence. Are you kidding me, Jeff? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that something? <laughs> so and as, and as you read here, what this also tells you is, usually when you were brought to trial, there was a charge against you. Okay? At this point, is there any charge against Jesus here? It says, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for, looking for false evidence against Jesus. They don't have a charge yet. They've arrested him, and they're bringing him to trial, and they don't have a charge. Okay? I was like, Joe, I'm arresting you. I'm putting you on trial. What do I do? I don't know, but we're going to find something. That's what they were doing. We don't know, but we're going to find something. Wow. That's amazing. So they're not looking for the truth. I mean, most trials are, I mean, I think, I think we're still enough in this country that when we take someone to trial, we're trying to find the truth. I think in most most trials, if you're someone's arrested or something, you're trying to find the truth of what really happened. But that wasn't even that, that wasn't even in the minds of this trial. The people who had this trial, it's like we have to find something that we can use to find Jesus guilty. Okay, and it says that in verse sixty. But they did not find any evidence, though many, many false witnesses came forward. Couldn't find anything. You know why? Guilty was, Jesus wasn't guilty of anything. Don't you think if there was any... No, this is a statement, strong, a strong statement in the Bible, as strong as any other statement, that Jesus was without sin. If he had done anything, if he had said anything, there was any way whatsoever, in any way, broke any of God's commandments or laws, they would have found it, they would have known it, they would have said it. And and even Satan would have, right? Satan would have somehow, if if, if they didn't know it, Satan would somehow have revealed it to them. So not on, not not even Satan and his demons or these Satan-led people who are doing this, they couldn't come up with a single true piece of evidence of any law, of anything that Jesus ever did that was wrong. Because when someone's without sin, how do you find something wrong? And they couldn't. And so in the Greek, uh, the word false witnesses a false witness is, um, it says here in verse 60, many false witnesses came forward. The uh, word there is, in Greek is pseudo-martyr, pseudo-martyr. Martyr 
in Greek means a witness, someone who sees something and testifies to it. So the martyrs of the church were people who witnessed for Jesus and proclaimed him, and they died for that. Uh, and that's why they became known as martyrs, but they were witnesses for Christ. And so a pseudo-martyr is someone who's a pretend martyr, a false martyr, a false witness. And uh, like we said, if you were found to be a false witness, you would suffer the same uh, the same punishment as the person who would be uh, otherwise found guilty of that crime. And uh, when it says many, I just wonder how many. Because many has to be more than one or two, don't you think? Many has to be like a bunch. So, But that's where they were. So we're going to stop there because the next thing we're going to go into is the next verse says, Finally two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And we're going to launch into next week, we're going to start there, is the fact that that's not really what Jesus said. They changed what he said. And like I said before, the two who said it didn't even really agree exactly with what he said. And we're also going to talk about why this particular thing that they accuse Jesus of is like jackpot for Caiaphas and Annas. It's the one thing that they're able to use that will find Jesus guilty both to a Jewish audience and a Roman audience. It's like it's like the finding the needle in the haystack. And it's like, yes, this is perfect. This is exactly what we needed. We'll talk about that next week. So That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.